wonderful 20th century storyteller, Isaiah Bashevis Singer once admitted, I only pray when I'm in trouble. But I'm in trouble all the time, so I pray all the time. I resonate with that. Because we need to pray, and because of the trouble we're in, we pray because we have to, because we get to, because of the thankfulness we feel. But when we offer up these prayers, sometimes we lack the words we need. And in those moments when I don't have the words I need to voice the prayers of my heart, I turn to the prayers other people have prayed, which teach me about the language and spirit of prayer. I want to mention three of these prayers that others have offered that are still teaching me how to pray. And one of them comes from a Breton fisherman who said, O God, thy sea is so great. And my boat is so small. Oh God, thy sea is so great and my boat is so small. We live limited and bounded lives in the heart of a God who is vast, mysterious, beautiful, and glorious. We have our limited lives, and we live them in the immensity of a God who exceeds our capacity to know. Oh God, thy sea is so great, and my boat is so small. And there's this prayer of the Catholic monk Thomas Merton, which I have prayed so often that if I had kept a quarter in my pocket and rubbed it every time I prayed it, there wouldn't be any image left on the quarter by now. My Lord God, I have no idea where I'm going. I do not see the road ahead of me. I cannot know for certain where that road will end, nor do I really know myself. And the fact that I think I'm following your will doesn't mean that I'm actually doing so. But I believe that the desire to please you does, in fact, please you. And I hope I have that desire in all that I'm doing. I hope I will never do anything apart from that desire. And I know that if I do this, you will lead me by the right road, though I may know nothing about it. I love the humility and the trust of that. I don't know whether what I'm doing pleases you, but I know that the desire to please you pleases you. And I believe that if I keep traveling, you will take me on a road or make the road I'm on the road you want me to travel. I have no idea where I'm going, but I'm going with and toward you. 
Now, I don't know about you, but I miss Calvin and Hobbes. That delightful comic strip about a six-year-old boy and his stuffed tiger. It was one of my favorite cartoons, and here's one I particularly liked. Calvin once said to Hobbes, Know what I pray for? Know what? I pray for the strength to change what I can, the inability to accept what I can't, and the incapacity to tell the difference. Hobbes said, you should lead an interesting life. And Calvin said, oh, I I already do. Now, we know that Calvin had scrambled up what we know as the serenity prayer, which is central to the daily practice of millions of people who are in 12-step recovery groups. The prayer actually came from the mind and heart of theologian Reinhold Niebuhr. God grant me the serenity to accept the things I cannot change, courage to change the things I can, and the wisdom to know the difference. I've known this prayer for most of my adult life, but in unsettled seasons like these, I pray it even more urgently because it teaches me to ask the right questions even when the answers are slow to come. What is serenity anyway? I mean, we know what serenity is on a bright, beautiful day like this. We know what serenity is when everything is basically calm with those closest to us. We know what serenity is when... Blessings outnumber burdens. But what is serenity when you face questions you can't answer? Problems you can't solve. Burdens you can't quite manage to carry. What is serenity then? And what are the things we cannot change anyway? How can I be sure I'm not surrendering too soon and yielding too early? What if it's not as late as I think it is? What if I've let other people tell me what's possible rather than God? And what is courage anyway? And what about wisdom? I mentioned these three prayers, the prayer of the fisherman, the prayer of Thomas Merton and the serenity prayer, I mention these three prayers because they have helped me to pray when I have lacked words, but also because they remind me of the prayer Paul prayed in Ephesians 1 that Jana read for us a few moments ago. These prayers bear a family resemblance to each other because they all acknowledge the depths and heights in God which are far beyond our capacity to comprehend. And these prayers, like that prayer in Ephesians, acknowledge that there are questions and challenges which stretch us beyond our ability to manage. Now this prayer in Ephesians is a nine-verse run-on sentence in Greek. A nine-verse run-on sentence. 
I mentioned to you a couple of weeks ago Dr. David Ruffin, my freshman college composition teacher who gave me the only C I've ever made in anything and told me that I have interesting things to say but say them like a hick. Um, I've mentioned him to you, and you can tell I still have some feeling about that <laughs> feedback. Dr. Ruffin spent the first two weeks of class reading and reciting Shakespeare to us, and then he spent three weeks with us diagramming sentences and teaching us the parts of speech. He had the impression that most of us rednecks who had gathered for English in, with him at Georgia Southern College lacked the basics of both language and grammar. And he decided one day to put a couple of my sentences on the board to be diagrammed. And he started. And then he stepped back from the blackboard, chalk in his hand, threw the chalk exasperatedly down on the tray and said, I give up. <laughs> he might have said that about this run-on sentence the Apostle Paul offered, even though Paul was brilliantly educated. But it's nine verses, one sentence, without a pause. Why did he do that? You can even hear it in English. It's a little convoluted and difficult to understand. Here's what I think happened to Paul. I think his sentence is a wreck because the joy and the wonder and the urgency he feels just completely outran his grammar and syntax. He was trying to write what can't finally be written. He was trying to say what can't actually be said. The theologian Karl Barth once said that trying to write theology is like trying to paint a bird in flight. It can't be done because the subject, God, won't hold still. And Paul is attempting to put into words a wonder and a beauty so vast and so wild and wonderful that they can't be corralled by words. He's trying to bring into the fold of words what wants to stay out on the loose. But he tries. He piles up adjectives and superlatives. If he were writing this prayer in an email, it would include, I am sure, emoticons, underlinings, exclamation points, highlights. He wants to say something to his friends about his prayer for them that he's afraid they're going to miss. And he doesn't want them to miss it. Because what he's talking to them about is praying for them to have all the empty places of their inner lives finally filled with the only thing that can satisfy those empty places, which is God. And so here's how 
I understand and how I pray this prayer for you. Two phrases. I pray that God's Spirit, the Spirit of wisdom and revelation, will enable you to know what you could never discover on your own. And here it is. God is like Jesus. God loves you. And God is for you and not against you. I pray that you will know, not just in your head, but in your gut, that God is like Jesus. God loves you. And God is for you and not against you. And I pray that you will realize there is always hope. More hope than you've feared in your hardest moments. And even more hope than you've dreamed on your best and brightest days. There is hope. Because God's power, the power of resurrection, is loose in the world. That's how I understand this nine-verse run-on sentence of Paul. I pray that you will know that God is like Jesus. And I pray that you will know there is more hope than you feared or dreamed there might be. Someone once asked the brilliant African-American preacher Gardner Taylor, Taylor how many points a sermon should have. And he stopped for a few minutes and thought, and he said, well, at least one. <laughs> and as I understand it, here at age 59, having preached nearly every week across, across 40 years, I really only have one point I'm trying to make in all my sermons. And that is this point, which Paul prays his friends will realize. God is like Jesus. In the middle of the 20th century, the Archbishop of Canterbury, Michael Ramsey, said, In God, there is no unchristlikeness at all. And what that means is that anything you hear or think, you have heard or thought, because it is a message from God and it contradicts the word, the witness, the deeds of Jesus, if what you think you heard God say doesn't sound like something Jesus would say, it's not God. And if what you have had done to you isn't something Jesus would do to you, then it's not God. This has helped me, this idea that in God there is no unchristlikeness at all has helped me more than I know how to express. 
Because in our culture these days and in our, our church culture, there are some perfectly awful things said about God. God comes off looking like an angry lightning bolt throwing despot who cannot wait to crush people for any weakness or failure. And that's not the God we see in Jesus. If anything you hear doesn't sound like Jesus, it's not God. And if anything gets done to you by life or by another person that isn't something you would imagine Jesus to do, it's not God. When she was 16 years old, Margaret Bullitt Jonas enrolled in an Outward Bound program and she promptly got lost in the woods with some other girls in northern Minnesota. Armed with a compass, a map, matches, tents, sleeping bags, and a half dozen sandwiches, these six girls made nearly every mistake in the book. First, they discounted the map, the map and the compass. They figured they could find their way without them. Then they took what they thought would be a shortcut across a ridge. It turned out to be a false trail, a trail to nowhere, at least nowhere they wanted to go. When it started to get dark, they decided not to pitch their tents. Instead, they just spread their sleeping bags out under the stars. It didn't look like it would rain. And anyway, what if it did? By early evening, it had started to pour, and they were soaked. Their sleeping bags were wet completely through. And so there they were, these six young women huddled in the dark in sodden sleeping bags, lost, new to the wilderness, and they heard some sounds in the far-off woods, urgent, plaintive sounds. What in the world made a sound like that? One of the girls said, I think it's a moose. It's a bellowing moose. And so they ask each other, what do you, what do, you do about a moose? Is a moose aggressive? Is a moose going to attack? We didn't know about moose. How do you say, is it? What's a plural of moose? Mooses? It sounds, <laughs> sounds wrong, doesn't it? But I, I, don't, I don't think it's mices. So anyway, so they decided to get very quiet. Stay calm. Don't make a sound. We don't want to get the attention of the moose. And what they found out later was what they thought were the sounds of a moose were the sounds of a rescue party sent to search for them. Instead, they had to spend all night huddled against each other, soaking wet. And then she says this, there are many ways of being lost, even more ways of putting oneself in harm's way. In my case, I wandered into problems later in life that included addiction, and I stayed there trapped not knowing how to find a way out, but I did find a way out. Then she says, I want to tell everyone who is lost, there are things you can do if your compass is missing. There are ways to collect rain until you found your own spring. Especially there are voices to which you should pay attention. And you should say back to them, yes, 
here I am when they call out to you. Jesus is God's voice calling out to us when we are lost in whatever ways we are lost. But sometimes we mistake God's voice for the threat of judgment and condemnation. It sounds like a rumbling creature instead of the clear voice of God in Jesus. God is like Jesus. I want you to know that. And know that when He comes to you, His only intention for you is to take you home, to hold you in arms of love, to teach you how to live the life He wants you to live. And I want you to know that there is hope. I'm praying you will know that there is hope. This resurrection power that God has unleashed on the world is stronger than any force, influence, authority, or institution. Stronger than racism and poverty, stronger than addiction and abuse, stronger than injustice and violence, stronger than illness and pain, stronger than weakness and death, sadness and tears, stronger, more powerful than Wall Street, Silicon Valley, the Fortune 500, the Treasury Department, the Federal Reserve, the White House, the Supreme Court, Congress. Our future does not depend on conservatives or liberals or moderates or reds or blues or purples or Republicans or Democrats. We finally are in the grip of a greater power, the power of resurrection hope. I don't know about you. Maybe it's because of where I stand in life right now. But these feel like unsettled times to me. And when we get unsettled and insecure and fearful, it's easy to forget the most important truths. Just to let them slip away and allow our anxieties to take their place. I think Paul's friends in Ephesus were in a place like that, and I think some of us are in a place like that. So I join Paul, and I ask you to join Paul in praying that we will know two things, at least two things. Because God is like Jesus, we are loved with an everlasting love. And because Jesus is raised from the dead, there is always hope. Healing can come even when curing doesn't. And tomorrow comes even when today has faded away. Eternity holds us even when the present moment passes. There is hope because there is love.
Amen.